Good evening, this is Doug Taylor, and welcome to the Noahide Nation's class on Proverbs. Uh, we are starting tonight in Proverbs chapter 14, verse 3, and it is uh, June 6th, 2010. Proverbs chapter 14, verse 3, and the verse reads, In the mouth of a fool is a stick of haughtiness, and in the lips of the wise they will be protected. In the mouth of a fool is a stick or a rod of haughtiness, and in the lips of the wise they will be protected. So, any questions about that verse? What questions would we want to ask ourselves at the outset? Again, reminding, uh, reminding ourselves that the process here is to first get questions on the table instead of trying to jump first to answers. Any questions that you can think of? Uh, so Eva wants to ask why the stick, uh, which is a very good point. In the sense of the mouth of a fool is a stick of hoidiness. That's kind of an odd metaphor. I mean, you don't usually literally think of a stick in your mouth. Why does the verse use that metaphor? What does it mean uh, that there's a stick in, of haughtiness in the mouth of a fool? And, uh, and Naomi, it looks like you've added to that, how can the, the lips... Uh, guard the wise. Yeah, and the lips of the wise, they will be protected. So how does that work? How do the wise uh, get protected uh, in their lips? So uh, there are three different interpretations of this verse, and we'll cover all three uh, by three different commentators, and I think we can learn something from each one. The Ralbag holds that a stick is something you beat with, okay? Uh, good place to start, and that one quality of haughtiness is to attack other people. So a haughty person, one quality of that is that they're going to attack other people. Now a wise person will know how to protect himself from these types of people who will try to tear him down. The verse doesn't mention the exact method involved. Um, but the natural inclination when someone attacks you, what is the natural inclination if someone attacks you? If they attack you by a weapon, if they attack you with their fists, if they attack you with their words, what is the natural inclination of a person to do? What do you think? Okay, and Eva, you said, is that like arrogance? Uh, no, I think we're looking for, for something different here. Um, and, and Naomi, I think you're, you're on to that. We, we want to protect. We may want to go away, but a lot of people, their natural inclination, yeah, good point, Terry, is to, is to defend. You hit me, first thing I'm going to naturally do is turn around and hit you back. And if you come up and hit me with a stick, I'm going to grab a stick and try to hit you. If you come up and, and, uh, you know, punch me in the face, I'm going to turn around and punch you. If you yell at me or insult me, my natural inclination is probably going to want to be to insult you back. So the natural inclination when someone attacks us is generally to attack back. In this case, uh, we won't necessarily try to take the stick away. So in the case of the, of the haughty person who is um, attacking other people and not in a literal, you know, sword kind of way, but probably using words and trying to tear you down. The wise person will ask for more information and stay calm. And so, in this particular interpretation, this the Ralbag is giving the subject is how to protect yourself when someone attacks you. If you think about someone who comes up and insults you. Uh, I mean, imagine just a simple physical illustration. If you go up and push someone hard, not just like you accidentally bumped into them, but I mean, you take your two hands and push them against their shoulders and push them, uh, their natural inclination is to push back. And so when someone uh, attacks us verbally, that natural inclination is to verbally attack back. What that does is it provides more resistance 
to them and they verbally attack us some more and then we verbally attack them some more and pretty soon we're in a big noisy argument and blood pressure's up, emotions are up, you know, there's kind of a verbal fight going on. But if somebody comes up and uh, says to me, you know, Doug, you are the stupidest guy I have ever encountered. Well, there's a couple ways I can respond to that. I can say, yeah, you think I'm stupid? Well, you're an idiot. Well, all that does is fuel the argument. But if he comes up and says, you know, Doug, you're the stupidest person I've ever met. And I say to him, well, I have been known to do some stupid things in my life. What particular stupid thing did you have in mind? And I stay very calm. He has nothing to push against. And so he may say, well, you know, you part your hair on the wrong side. And if I say, well, yeah, you know, I've parted it a couple places and I've still never found a place that it really looks good. It's hard for him to continue that anger because he hasn't got anything to push against because I'm not resisting him. And generally speaking, people like that will run out of steam because they have nothing to push back against to keep fueling that anger. If I keep finding something that I agree with and then I ask for more information, but I stay calm. A good customer service person uh, can use this technique in a store when they're dealing with an angry customer who's maybe unhappy about a purchase they made or, or something. If they get angry back at the customer, all it will do is fuel the customer's anger. But if they stay calm and just keep asking for information, the person's steam runs out. And so this is a way that you can deal with a haughty person who is in attack mode by staying calm, asking for more information, then you can potentially get to a place where you can find uh, you know, a resolution with them. So that seems to be what the Ralbag um, is getting at here, is the subject is how do you protect yourself when someone attacks you? The second half being then in the lips of the wise they will be protected. That is, they will know not to attack back, but to stay calm and to uh, ask for more information from the person and keep drawing them out so as to diffuse that angry steam uh, and get to a place of peace. So that's the Rob Bog. Any, any questions on that interpretation? Okay. Um, the Ibn Ezra notices that in the beginning of the verse it says, in the mouth. And it could have said it differently, but that's King Solomon picked those words. And the second half, it says the lips. So in Ibn Ezra's interpretation, the first half is referring to the tongue, which is in the mouth. And so the haughty person, the tongue just speaks out. But the lips means uh, that the wise person has the desire, you know, maybe to fire back, but he uses his lips to control his desire. The lips kind of form, if you will, a protective barrier around the tongue. And so the haughty person, you know, just fires off their, uh, you know, what they're thinking or they're uh, putting down on another person or whatever. But the, the wise person uses their lips to control uh, their desire. So the subject from the Ibn Ezra standpoint is this stick of haughtiness, this uh, desire to speak things that uh, will be perhaps harmful to another person. The person in the first half goes ahead and allows that to operate, lets the tongue just roll out there. The other person in the second half, the wise person, uses their lips to control that. Okay? Any questions on that? Okay. So, the third interpretation is given by Rashi. And Rashi asks, what does the stick of haughtiness mean? Um, and he gives as an example uh, Pharaoh who responds 
at one point in the story with Moses, as you may recall, who is God that I should listen you know, to his voice? So Rashi's dealing here with the definition of haughtiness. And so Rabbi Moskowitz in explaining this uh, said like this, he said, when Pharaoh says that he won't listen, there are two possibilities. One is that he's saying, look, I'm a king and I don't have to listen to anybody. So that's one type of haughtiness. The second type is that he, second type of haughtiness is that he's saying that, you know, I got all kinds of gods here. So in essence, he's saying, I know it all. Uh, it's a haughtiness of the mind. So th there are some people you'll find in uh, various business professions that are like this. For example, a doctor who takes the position that, you know, I have all the information. You know. um, now, there is a worse type of haughtiness uh, that the verse is not talking about. And Rabbi Moskowitz indicated that's the haughtiness of Joseph. If you remember the story of Joseph and his brothers, he had prophetic dreams and he told his brothers about the dreams. Why did he do that? I mean, his brothers reacted terribly. What was going on in Joseph's mind? I mean, what happened to, you know, the idea of wisdom and fear of consequences? I mean, wouldn't he, you expect that he would have figured out, man, if I go tell my brothers this dream, they're going to be mad at me. And Rabbi Moskowitz said this very important point. The anger, or sorry, the answer, is that haughtiness makes you not see information. Haughtiness makes you not see information. A person can become very self-centered and then they don't notice things going on around them because they're so focused on themselves. So Joseph didn't notice the sibling rivalry because he was very, very self-centered. And that kind of haughtiness can be very dangerous uh, and potentially very destructive. And you see in the story, of course, what happened as a result of that. The brothers got, you know, very upset with him and ended up selling him into slavery and the whole story that uh, occurred after that. So it's a character trait we have to be very, very careful of, uh, both from the standpoint of not accidentally taking it on, uh, uh, and then having our vision get clouded so we don't see reality going on around us. And at the same time, knowing how to deal with someone who has that character trait, uh, who may uh, direct it against us, and we have to know how to properly deal with that uh, in order not to get caught in that trap. Okay, any questions on this verse? Okay. Let's continue on then to Proverbs chapter 14, verse 4. And the verse reads, Where there are no oxen, the trough is clean, but an abundance of crops comes through the strength of one ox. Seems like an interesting formulation. Where there are no oxen, the trough is clean, but an abundance of crops comes through the strength of one ox. So, what kind of questions might we ask around that verse? Stuff that seems odd or unusual or doesn't make clear sense to us or that we would need to define in order to understand what the verse is trying to tell us. What are the questions here? Okay, Eva, thanks. What are crops? Um, all right. Yeah. What what uh, what are we talking about when we talk about crops? Is it literally, you know, wheat, barley, corn, whatever it might be, or is it something else? Naomi, you've said the answer seems to be in the question itself. Okay. So what what does it mean? So the questions I would ask was, well, what does it mean when there are no oxen? The trough is clean, and and what does it mean that an abundance of crops comes through the strength of one ox? And overall, what is King Solomon trying to tell us with this particular verse? 
Okay, Terry, is the crib a stable? Yeah. What is... What exactly do the words mean here? My understanding of the literal mean um, is a trough would be where you would, you know, put the crops. So Rabbi Moskowitz offers this interpretation. If you have a good tool, you get a lot of things. And without the correct tools, you haven't got anything. Because... Without the right tools, you can't get to the result that you want. So you need the correct tools in order to achieve the result that you want. So for example, if you have no oxen, the trough is clean. That is, you have no crops. Why? Because you don't have an ox to plow the field in order to get the crops. In other words, you lack the tool needed to do the job. By contrast, if you have an ox, then you can plow the field. And by plowing the field, you can get an abundance of crops. And that comes about because you have the right tool. So he suggests that for the best results in life, you have to have a good mind. And the mind becomes a tool for your investigation which is a constant investigation of life. It's a tool that you want to carefully nurture, that you want to take good care of, and that you want to help grow. So you want your mind to be continually involved in the world of learning, of growth, of analysis, of looking at ideas, of considering consequences. That is your key tool. And the verse seems to be teaching us here that whatever it is you decide to do in life, you should get the best tool because with it you'll be able to produce better results by having good tools. Now, that might seem immediately obvious, and it could be, but there are cases where people try to shortcut certain situations or they want to... to um, take short uh, shortcuts to get certain places or just in terms of you know buying things uh, you know you can buy a quality piece of equipment that and you might probably will pay a little bit more money or you can buy a cheap and shoddy piece of equipment that will fall apart very quickly uh, I have a, a person that I know who had a I think at the time his son was nine years old and his son, uh, and his dad was a computer specialist for a large organization. Um, and they had various computers in the house. And his son had some money that I think he got as a gift. And he went out and spent it on a, uh, just a cheap toy. And his dad tried to convince him, I think, before he bought the toy. Look, you know, the thing's just going to break and fall apart. And you, you know, you'll, you'll, um, You'll use it once or twice, and that'll be that. But the, the son bought it anyway. And sure enough, he played with it once or twice, and it broke and couldn't be fixed. And his dad said, kind of, see, you know, that's what you get. Well, I, I, I don't know exactly how the dad presented it to him, that lesson, but he presented it to him in a way that really stuck. And that nine-year-old sat down or got busy and by saving up, you know, gifts he got, I guess, for his birthday and from his grandparents and doing chores and whatever, in, I want to say it was somewhere around nine months to a year, he had saved up enough money to buy a really nice MacBook computer. And he did. And his dad said, my son now has the best computer in the house. But he got it that, you know, with the right tool, uh, you know, he would get better results. And, of course, he got way more enjoyment, I'm sure, for a much longer period of time out of that MacBook computer than he did out of this, you know, cheap toy that he had bought. So I think the verse is trying to, again, tell us, to the degree that you can, you should get the best tool for the job. Uh, and in the case of the world of learning, I'll submit to you, that tool is our mind. And so we want to nurture that and use it 
and keep it involved in the process of learning and analysis uh, and uh, you know questioning not just here but you know in other places as well questioning what we read in news reports questioning what we uh, you know different things that people might tell us uh, and that gets us involved in the world of analysis and the world of finding out what's really too, true and what's reality okay any questions on that verse 14 verse 4 So I'd like to jump around just a little bit uh, and deviate off of the verses themselves to share with you uh, several thoughts that Rabbi Moskowitz uh, shared in some classes and that um, came up when I was putting together the preparation for this class that I thought were important enough uh, that you would find them both interesting and useful uh, as, as part of our study of Proverbs. And they relate very closely to the kinds of things uh, that we've been talking about. Uh, and some of them are, are short, but I think you'll see the, uh, the importance. The first is, when you think of sin, there are really two parts to sin. There's the act itself, and then there's the emotion that affects your thinking process that caused you to sin. So the actual sin is the incorrect act involved. So let's say a person goes and steals something, okay, that's not theirs. So the, the theft is a sin, but the cause of the theft is some emotion operating. And so that's the part that you have to work on. Yes, you need to stop sinning and, and stop you know, don't, not commit theft. But beyond that, then you have to look at what caused me to do that and figure out what is the emotion there that drove me to commit this act and figure out how do I deal with that emotion. Okay, that's a key for uh, repentance. I mean, repentance is... is uh, you know, not some sort of hellfire and brimstone kind of process, but repentance is about looking back and realizing that you made a mistake, okay, made the sin, and, uh, you know, expressing to God orally uh, your shame for having done so, and uh, uh, a, a, you know, sincere promise not to do that again, but you also need to dig in and find out what caused me to do that in the first place. And it's not a digging that, in my understanding, should be based on guilt or beating myself up. It's a sincere desire to know why did I do that? What caused me in my psyche to go do that thing? And how can I undo that? In a very calm and rational way. Uh, and so... That's an important aspect when we think about sin. The word sin is kind of a, a charged word because it's got a lot of, because of the society we live in, a lot of religious connotation to it. Uh, and, and at least from uh, the background that I have, you know, raises all kinds of uh, ideas around guilt and shame and fear and so forth. But we need to be asking ourselves, okay, I did an incorrect act. What's the emotional drive that caused me to do that? And to figure that out in a very rational uh, uh, and to the degree that we can detached way so that we can take steps to make sure that that situation doesn't occur again in the future. Okay? Does that make sense? Any questions on that point? Okay, uh, let me move on. Rabbi Moskowitz also shared that Rabbi Chaim Soloveitchik said that if you can't explain the most abstract idea to a 10-year-old, then you don't understand it. Okay? You have to be able to break it down. And so if you can't go through all the steps a little bit at a time, then you don't fully understand the idea. If I can share an analogy, and I may have shared this in a previous class, I took piano lessons when I was a child. And sometimes I would get to a difficult part in the music, 
and I would just sort of quickly mush my way through it. And in my own mind, I was sort of imagining that I was playing it properly. But if my teacher would come along and say, play that part slowly for me, I couldn't do it. Because I wasn't really playing it, I was just sort of blooming, you know, mushing my way through it. And it's, I think, a similarly analogous way here. If there's a certain idea uh, that you're operating your life based on, and you can't walk step by step through all the steps and explain it to someone else, and maybe even at the level of a 10-year-old, then you don't fully have it yet. Okay, it's not a bad thing. It just means you need to recognize that and say, okay, I don't really have this yet. I need to go back and get these steps clear in my mind so that I fully understand them. Similarly, if you can't explain both sides of an argument to a person, and I understand he said you aren't qualified to choose a side, because you should be able to explain both sides of the argument, and then if you do, then you're in a position to be able to say, okay, having looked at both sides and fully understanding both sides of an argument, I choose this side because, you know, whatever your reasoning is. But if you can't explain both sides of an argument to a person, then you aren't qualified to choose. That's why it's very important to learn how to make distinctions in your mind between one thing and another and how to train your mind to look for those distinctions. Okay? This, by the way, becomes very important um, in interpersonal relationships. If you're having an argument with your spouse, one of the most helpful ways, I think, to be able to resolve that is to be able to understand the argument of the other person well enough that you can state their argument convincingly. This also is very important in negotiations. If I'm negotiating, I'm person A negotiating with person B, and you know I want something and they want something, and we're trying to come to an agreement, if I can get to a place where I understand their position well enough that I can state their position as effectively as they can, I am in a better position to be able to come up with uh, a win-win kind of situation. But if I won't listen to their argument or I'm closed-minded or closed-eared and all I want is what I want, then that's not going to carry me very far toward a win-win type of agreement. Okay. Um, and let me pause uh, for questions on that. If you have them, and Eva, I see uh, that you said this came up in study. What's the difference between uh, sinner and wickedness and righteousness and godliness. Okay, so there's four things there. Um, and let me take the first two to the best of my understanding. The difference between a sinner and wickedness is we're all sinners. I mean, we've all made mistakes. Okay, uh, that's part of the human condition. There is no person uh, that has not. But the difference between that and wickedness is the wicked person has made a decision to focus their energies in the area or toward the direction of um, sinning and their, uh, their emotions and doing, I guess, what we would call evil things. An extreme example of that is Hitler. Uh, there is a guy who, you know, was focusing his energy on evil, not just somebody going through life making, you know, a mistake or a, a sin here or there. So uh, hopefully, Eva, that, that helps. It's the, the difference between a sinner, which we all are, and wickedness is wickedness where you have made essentially a conscious decision to focus your life um, into the realm of uh, the desires and self-centeredness and uh, you know, your own pursuit of pleasure and your emotions. Um, now, the difference between righteousness, righteousness and godliness, that one is a more difficult one. Godliness, uh, I think that's one where I would have to look up what the commentators actually say about that. I mean, it's certainly a very high level. Uh, righteousness, uh, a, a person who is... Righteous is wanting to, you know, 
do the, the proper thing and act in accordance with their mind, they may still have some of the desires of a wicked person, but they are taking actions that are in accordance with their mind and making uh, decisions in accordance with reality, in accordance with, um, with, God's, uh, with God's Torah. Uh, so a person can be righteous and still have the desire to do wicked. Uh, if they choose to act on that, okay, now you're moving into the realm of wickedness. Uh, a per once, but a, a person who is, is doing the correct thing but has still battling the emotional desires, that person uh, is considered righteous. Now, there's a level beyond that, uh, I would call it higher than that, where a person gets to the point where they, they've, they've totally overcome the emotions. They don't even have the emotional desires anymore because their mind is so focused on the world of reality and the world of ideas and the world of Hashem uh, that they don't even have the desires that a wicked person has. Uh, and that's an, an incremental level uh, above that. Whether that's technically called godliness, uh, I'm, I'm, that one I can't answer. Um, I know there are some, uh, I, I believe uh, Rabbi Lozato uh, has addressed some of those distinctions in some of, uh, of his books, but I'm not cognizant enough of that to be able to make that distinction for you. Eva, does that help? I'll assume yes unless I, uh, unless I hear from you. Okay. Um, any other questions before we move on? Okay, um, another point, and this is one we've touched on before, but again, it's worth reviewing. Don't rely on authorities without thought, but rely on your own mind. In other words, people come along sometimes and they will, uh, particularly in the religious realm, and they'll, they'll attach themselves to somebody and then they think that person has the truth. That person is the oracle. Whatever they say, I will do. And they will stop thinking themselves and just follow that person. We see that happen in cults and those kinds of things. Oh, so-and-so said this. Uh, and people will follow those people and do all kinds of crazy things. And what they've done is they've abandoned their own thinking process and given it over to some authority. Uh, that's not the Torah approach. Uh, we may rely on an authority temporarily in order to learn from them and gather enough information so we can uh, understand a subject area, but fairly quickly we need to be questioning to find out, is that authority telling us something that is true? So we always go, and in any subject area, you go to a teacher, but hopefully you first research, okay, who's a qualified teacher, and then I don't just swallow everything they tell me, you know, hook, line, and sinker, but I listen to what they're saying, and I think about it, and I analyze it, and I ask questions around it. And once I've asked all the questions possible around an idea and answered them, then the idea becomes mine. Then I own that idea. Uh, and it's not that I'm relying on them, it's that I see the truth of the idea. So we need to question authorities until we understand the ideas, not just blindly accept authorities. Okay, and along with that, there is no college class for this. Um, there's no college class on training the mind. Uh, even when you go to college, even logic is designed to just be another class. You know, it teaches you some techniques and so forth, but it's not a training of the mind. The training of the mind is, is the kind of work that we're doing here in Michele, where we're, we're looking at ideas written by uh, King Solomon, the wisest man who ever lived, and grappling with them and understanding them, digging into them and find out what is he saying and why this, why not that, why did he put it this way and why not that way, what does this really mean, and wait a minute, it looks like it means this, but that can't be if it's taken this way, so it must mean a different thing. It's that wrestling and grappling and whatever, uh, as we start to see the ideas, that becomes our training of the mind. So that's why it's so important to be involved in continuous learning. Uh, we should all be lifelong learners. Uh, we never stop this process. We just keep going and going and going uh, on with it. Okay, any questions on that?
Okay. Uh, another idea. When you look at the physical world, you see that a lot of people are attached to the physical, and they make decisions on that basis. You know, I want the physical, I'm going after the physical, whether it's riches or, you know, new cars or boats or houses or whatever it might be. Now, when you do good things based on your emotions, when you do good things based on your emotions, that's a good thing. That's a good result. But the physical life in and of itself is not necessarily a good life because there are a lot of problems with it. And usually when you want something in the physical world, it's never enough. You get the thing, you think, oh, if I can just have that thing, whatever that thing is, a new home, a new car, I want a new computer, I want a vacation, you know, whatever it is, if I can just get that one thing, life will be great. And you get the one thing, and it's great for about, I don't know, a day or a week or whatever. And then you want the next thing and the next thing. So it's usually never enough. And so Rabbi Moskowitz wanted to say, then you, you need to move, you know, because it's never enough, so you need to move to the world of the spiritual. And how should you do that? How should you move? First, in those areas where you wouldn't act because of your conscience, you should know why you would do it that way. In other words, if, you, if there's something out there that you wouldn't do, because you think, oh, your conscience tells you, oh, that's wrong. You should know why it's wrong. You need to think it through. We shouldn't accept anything just based on our conscience, but we should stop and think through the rationale until we end up basing our actions on the rationale, not on our conscience. Okay? Conscience generally evokes guilt in us. So let me ask this question. And I'm looking for answers. What is the purpose of guilt? Okay, Eva, thank you. To make us repent could be. But what I want to suggest to you is that you can't always trust guilt because there are times when we feel guilty uh, over something that may be very indicative that, you know what, we messed up. And there may be guilt that doesn't indicate that we messed up at all. Terry, you've hit a very important point, to be a warning mechanism. I will suggest to you, and this is a key point that I learned years ago from Rabbi Moskowitz, that the real purpose of guilt is to prompt you to do an investigation with your rational mind to determine whether or not you did the right thing. Okay. The purpose, real purpose of guilt is to prompt you to do an investigation with your rational mind to determine whether or not you did the right thing. Okay. Because there's all kinds of false guilt out there. Um, and, and Naomi, you wrote, to correct ourselves from the thought we travel. I'm not sure what you mean by the last part. But I hopefully am getting to that in this, in this response. I mean, let's take a person that um, feels like, you know, if they don't dust their bookshelves once a week, they feel guilty. Well, where is it written in the cosmos that you have to dust your bookshelves once a week? I mean, you could dust them every two weeks. You don't have to dust them at all. Dust is a natural thing. It forms. But people feel guilty over stuff like that. Or they'll feel guilty because... Um, they got to have something and somebody else didn't. Uh, uh, you know, the pie is sliced up and they got a slightly bigger piece than their neighbor and they feel guilty about that. Well, is that correct? Did they do anything wrong? And I'd suggest the answer is no. So we have to be careful about that, about guilt, because it's, it's stemming from our conscience and our conscience could be telling us something that's not in line with reality. That old saying, let your conscience be your guide, came from the Walt Disney movie Pinocchio. Um, not anywhere in Torah. 
So the purpose of guilt is to prompt us to do an investigation with our rational mind to determine whether or not we did the right thing. Okay. Now, there's another benefit to this. Um, the, the truly righteous person, and then when I talk about there's a benefit to, to moving you know, away from the physical and into the, to the spiritual here. Uh, the truly righteous person doesn't care whether bad things happen to him. Why? Because it's a learning opportunity for his emotions. If he reacts badly, then it's an opportunity for him to correct himself. By contrast, if he looked at the situation objectively, then he can feel good because he emotionally reacted correctly. In other words, his mind stepped in, said, ah, this situation looks like this, and his emotions backed him up, which is the order that Mishle would have us act in. Intellect first, emotions following that, not the other way around. So the righteous person, a truly righteous person, can conclude that nothing in the world that happens is really bad. Because, you know, if it's bad for him, he sees it as an opportunity for his emotions. Uh, if it works out, uh, you know, well, then fine. So he sees everything as an opportunity. So whenever you have a weakness, you have to make uh, allowances for yourself, and, and, uh, or rather laws, for yourself some fences, if you will, to control that weakness. So, for example, a diet, if a person's trying to lose weight, a diet is a law that you make yourself to protect yourself against yourself. And so, if you have, say, a difficulty, you know, um, eating food maybe that's not good for you and causes you to become uh, heavier than you want to be, then you set up a diet and say, okay, I'm only going to eat this and this and this. That's a law that you made for yourself to protect yourself against yourself. And you only need to make laws in those areas where you have no control or you have difficulty in control. Because if I didn't have any difficulty controlling myself from what I ate, then, you know, I wouldn't need the diet. Now, we, we, I'll submit that we all face stuff like this. Every one of us has an area or areas in our lives that we struggle with uh, that um, we have to, uh, have to deal with. Okay, so, um, so you need to set up fences around that. Now, uh, around the things that you struggle with. And every one of us is going to have successes probably and failures. And the key is to never give up. I mean, if you're, uh, you know, working on something and you fail at it, okay, as Rabbi Mosgood said, you crawl under the covers, you cry it out, you get up the next day and you start all over again. The starting again will be very hard, but you have to do it. This is how we overcome stuff. Um, and... Um, and if you're working on something that's very difficult for you in the physical world, uh, you know, like maybe a certain kind of food that you really desire isn't good for you, um, and, and you slip and you eat some of it, okay, then you get up the next day and say, okay, I slipped yesterday, but I'm going to keep going uh, today. If you do that and you start seeing the harm that that food or whatever that thing is can cause you in the physical world, then you can start to move away from it and you become attached to the analysis of the idea around it, and, the, and that, that analysis starts to become the essence of your life. You start reviewing the idea that, okay, yes, I really love, you know, chocolate chip mint ice cream, but I know it's not good for me, you know, because of my particular sugar situation or whatever it happens to be. Uh, and so, um, you know, I keep reviewing those ideas and I keep analyzing, and it's that analysis that becomes the essence of my life, um, which also takes care of the issue of why bad things happen to good people, because everything becomes an opportunity for analysis and growth. 
So from the righteous person's standpoint, nothing bad ever happens to them because anything that comes along is simply an opportunity for them to look at the emotions they have and how they react to it. And if they don't react to it properly, it's like, oh, what a gift. I get to see this emotion that I have to deal with. And they see that as an opportunity for growth. Okay, any questions so far? Okay, let me see if I can cover off one more point here. Consequences are only there to tell you that you have a problem. So if you're getting a consequence that you don't like, stop and do an analysis. Is there something that I'm doing here that's causing this? Or is there anything that I can do to prevent this, whatever the thing is? And if so, then take some action. If not, and if I'm still bothered by the situation, so let's say it's something totally outside of my control, and yet I'm still bothered by the situation, then I have to ask myself, well, what is it about reality that I'm not willing to accept? So if I can take constructive action about a situation, then I do so. If not, then I need to accept reality. That is reality. Uh, you know, if, um, if I lose my job, I can, you know, jump up and down and stomp my feet all day. Uh, uh, and, but that's not going to do any good. Then I have to start asking myself, what is it about the reality of losing my job that I'm unwilling to accept here? Because obviously I'm having some kind of an emotional reaction. And the reality is I lost my job. Okay. So the point at that point, I mean, if I know that there's a possibility I might lose my job, then I would ask, well, what kind of constructive action can I take to prevent, you know, for, to avoid losing my job? But if I try everything I can, everything within my power, and I still lose my job, then at that point, it's like, okay, the point now is to accept that and figure out what the next constructive action is I can take. You know, wishing the situation were different only wastes my energy and makes me miserable. The question is, what is my next constructive action? Okay. Now, and interestingly, we, we see this with regard to um, when Bathsheba was pregnant and, uh, or sorry, um, uh, when the, uh, uh, Bathsheba's child died. Uh, David, he, uh, he, you know, fasted and put ashes on his head and did all those things and prayed and so forth. And finally the child died and the people were afraid to go into him. They thought, man, if he's, you know, if David's really this upset before the kid happened, before, while the child was alive, what'll he say? Uh, you know what? He's dead. And what did David do? You know, he got up, washed himself and he moved on. He had done everything he could do and the child died. He accepted reality, accepted God's reality in that situation. Uh, and then he moved on. Okay. Now, when you study and think, you have certain book knowledge. Sometimes you have the knowledge, and it could be months or years later when you see that knowledge in a different light. It's kind of an epiphany. Sometimes you, you, know, you get to a certain place in life, and you hear an idea. And it's like you've heard that idea 20 times before, but suddenly it clicks, and you get it in a big way. It's a totally different view of the idea that affects you. Okay. Sometimes the knowledge doesn't immediately affect a person, but when you get that recognition, that insight, that epiphany, then the idea affects your emotions and your personality, and that's when the knowledge really has an effect on your life. So getting clarity of ideas can help in this, which is part of the reason why we go over ideas from many different directions. Okay, one more point, um, religion. Some people have proofs of God. And for some people, but probably not many, that proof affects them. But for some people, the proof doesn't affect them. You can show somebody a proof of God and it won't make a difference to them. And Rabbi Moskowitz suggested there's a certain relationship to God when you look at like the universe or nature programs or those kinds of things. You don't really need that much knowledge 
in order to look at the world and become a religious person, see the beauty and the complexity of the creation. The only problem you have to be careful of is that it shouldn't be your conscience that's doing that because you could end up adopting sort of emotional religion. But if you remove the emotions and get them lined up behind your intellect and allow yourself to just observe the world around you, a person has to conclude that there's a God. Now, Rabbi Moskowitz suggested there are two things that stop you from seeing God. One is certain emotions. For example, a person doesn't want to see God because they don't like religions. And they think that accepting God means they have to belong to some established religion, which they have an aversion to because of some negative experience they had around that religion. And it's not hard to find people who've had negative experiences with certain religions. So that's one thing that might stop a person from seeing God. They, they automatically make that leap, oh, if I accept that there's a God, that means I have to belong to a religion, and I don't like those. So they reject the original premise. The other thing that can stop them is a certain attachment to the physical world that doesn't allow them to see God. A person like a Rabbi Akiva, who was tortured to death by the Romans, uh, will never say, why do bad things happen to good people? Because he sees the benefit in everything. Uh, and to live in that reality is a certain development of moving away from the physical world. This is not about, very important that you get this, this is not about asceticism. This is not about saying, oh, pleasures are bad, and food is bad, and wine is bad, and sex is bad, and all that stuff. It's not about that. It's where you become so involved in the world of ideas that you move away from the physical world where the physical world is simply a means to get to the world of ideas. A person ends up eating in order to be able to learn, not because, oh, I really did, you know, my end goal is to be able to go have a beautiful banquet. But that has to happen because you see it. It can't happen because of your conscience. It can't happen because you know, you say to yourself, well, I really, I really shouldn't like this really nice meal that I was just sat down and, you know, that somebody just served up for me. I, I, I really should not enjoy this. No, it's, you have to be able to enjoy the physical world and also be able to see that the world of ideas is better. So, for example, you know, um, if somebody really enjoyed, um, you know, watching a movie, and then they felt guilty, like, well, I really shouldn't watch a movie. I should really uh, go learn. Okay, well, that's one level, but that's your conscience driving you to do it, sort of twisting your arm. I mean, the truth behind it is I really don't want to go study. I really want to watch the movie. But if you get involved enough over time in the world of ideas and the world of learning, pretty soon you'll choose the learning over the movie. Not because your conscience is guilting you into it, because that's what be, but because that's what you really would prefer. It's like, oh, I don't really want to watch a movie. I'd rather go learn. That's the development we're talking about. You can't fake it. You can't sidestep it. But it becomes a natural progression of being involved in the world of ideas. Okay, any questions on this? Okay, then we will stop here for the evening. Uh, thank you all very much for joining us, and I hope you'll be able to join us next week.